This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us from Sirius XM Studios in Washington, D.C. this week as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, a polyoptics potpourri. People Magazine's great Sandra Sobrai Westfall got the big get of the week, sitting down with Mitt and Ann Romney and Paul and Jana Ryan on their bus just hours after the Wisconsin congressman was named the GOP running mate. We'll check in with Sandra from the road, having just finished a similar sit-down with the Obamas. And with President Obama rolling out Ground Force One this week for another bus tour, the polyoptics action played out in Iowa, whose six electoral votes are at stake. George Cottle, who succeeded me at the White House as director of production, calls Des Moines home and gives us a first-hand account of how it's playing with the cornfield backdrop. Then, into the studio, my old friend Dan Rosenthal of the Albright Stonebridge Group stops by SiriusXM on his way to Camden Yards in Baltimore for a series that seems like a nail in the coffin for Dan and my beloved Red Sox. We'll talk Dustin, Bobby V, and harken back to the good old days when Dan was director of advance in the Clinton White House. And batting cleanup today, Matt Cooper of the Washington Journal. Matt's a legend in D.C. journalism circles. He's busy managing White House coverage today all over Paul Ryan and Joe Biden, and he's been doing it over three decades, through the Clinton years, through the Bush years, and now the Obama years, relieving the pressure with stand-up comedy and keeping readers informed until the last dog dies. But before we get to our guest this week, a couple of comments about this very busy week. Uh, I went to bed last Friday night a week ago, beginning to watch the tweets that there would be an announcement of Mitt Romney's vice presidential pick. A little odd. It was still the Olympics going on. But then I thought, you know, it was the final two days of a 17-night event. They weren't going to get stepped on by the closing nights of the of the Olympic Games. And if they made this announcement happen on a Saturday, they would get the full benefit of Sunday morning talk show news coverage, Sunday morning weekly show coverage. Then what clues did we have on Friday night? We knew it was happening in Virginia. We knew it was happening in Norfolk. So you're thinking, well, maybe is it the governor of Virginia? And then they said it was happening in Norfolk. And I thought, well, I'm this big fan of old Navy ships that are made into into museums. And I knew that the USS Wisconsin is birthed at Nauticus near Newport News and Hampton Roads and the Norfolk Naval Base. And so then it began to make sense, this narrative of Paul Ryan, representative from Wisconsin, to be Mitt Romney's running mate. And I got to say that they read my book. Now, Listeners should not take this as an endorsement of Romney Ryan. People know my background and they can guess how I might vote in November. But the Romney team did a much better job rolling out the Ryan pick than I expected they might. They begin with some great music of Romney coming down the gangway of the USS Wisconsin and then Congressman Ryan. Now, if you don't know that music, it comes from a movie several years ago, Harrison Ford, Sony Pictures, Air Force One. Not immediately recognizable, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, and certainly not a Bruce Springsteen or U2 
song that sort of you know the lyrics and you can really sing along. But I love this because it gives this stature and it gives this uh, gravitas to this moment, even though you don't know quite where the music is coming from. And then you see motion. You see Governor Romney walking down the gangway, bunting, festooning the, the iron the iron way, and then makes the announcement, here comes Congressman Ryan. The only miscue of the whole day was that moment when Governor Romney said, Join me in welcoming the next president of the United States, Paul Ryan. And then he was quick in an awkward, typically Romney fashion, coming back up to the stage, interrupting Paul Ryan from the beginning of his speech uh, to, to correct himself. Every now and then I'm known to make a mistake. <laughs> I did not make a mistake with this guy. But I can tell you this, he's going to be the next vice president of the United States. <laughs> In terms of narrative, look and feel, going to a place that has resonance, that has a story, state of Virginia, certainly a battleground state in play with a lot of electoral votes, the home of presidents, Washington, Monroe, Madison, uh, this was a good place to start. You don't have to go to Massachusetts or New Hampshire, where Romney maintains homes, or Wisconsin, where uh, where Ryan is from. You can start on the East Coast in a place like Virginia, and as the week bore out, move across the country, sometimes together on that North Carolina bus tour, and then when they split up and Romney goes to Florida and Ryan goes to Iowa. So we're going to talk to a lot of people this week about how the week unfolded. But I just wanted to give you a sense that when you go to polyoptics.com and read the 10-part story of polyoptics in this part about how you stage manage these huge events, and I think back to Obama's victory in 2008 in Grant Park and the use of the soundtrack from the film Remember the Titans, an adult great piece of music, not necessarily recognizable, but it gives gravitas to the moment. That's what the Romney team achieved. Well done. So we're able to catch up for a few minutes with Sandra Soberai Westfall, uh, the Washington correspondent for People Magazine, a woman that I worked with when she was an AP reporter during the Clinton years, and I was uh, in the Clinton White House. And since then, she was really given a a voice or a presence for politics and the Washington style and Washington life to one of the most uh, influential magazines in the United States. We're able to catch Sandra, I think, as she's coming back from covering President and Mrs. Obama in Iowa, and that follows right on top of an exclusive first interview with Governor and Mrs. Romney and Congressman and, and Jana Ryan on board their bus tour bus coming up through North Carolina just about 24 hours after Paul Ryan was rolled out as as Governor Romney's running mate. Congratulations, Sandra, on getting getting that get. How did it come to be for you? Well, thank you, and, and thank you for clarifying that, in fact, we were first because 60 Minutes uh, like to claim that bragging rights, but I think I was a good eight hours ahead of them. Um, you know, it's funny, People Magazine to the campaign folks who know what we do and who we talk to, we're the place everybody wants to be. We have 36 million readers, most of them women, and most of them politically active. So it's an audience that, that everybody wants to reach. So, you know, we had that commitment sort of, I, I think, almost two months ago um, to be the first to introduce the, the picket in its entirety, including the wives, 
um, and get to showcase them as families uh, right out of the gate. Your article, uh, The Honeymooners, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, starts with a sort of two-page double truck, a photograph by Peter Yang, in addition to your lead-in and then the interview that you did with uh, Governor Romney and Congressman Ryan and their wives. How were you handled and, and sort of moved from the event site at the USS Wisconsin and Nauticus into a position where the ticket is on the bus and you're sitting with them, chatting with them? Uh, we met them in Charlotte. Okay. Um, yeah, so we, we were um, just home all day Saturday waiting for the, the high sign to, are we going to meet up with them in Charlotte or at their final event of Sunday in Wisconsin? So we kind of unilaterally just headed to Charlotte, met up at the event, and, um, you know, it was it was funny because the governor and the congressman and their two wives settled around the table in the back of that bus and just really seemed like, they were going to settle in for a chat, and I think they were having a good time. Um, you know, the staff cut us short because the overflow crowd was broiling out in the sun. Um, so I didn't get my 15 minutes. I got, I think, 8 minutes and 36 seconds by my count on the tape recorder. Um, but they were really, they were having fun, and it was it was kind of cute because I feel like we unearthed some detail that the vetting team hadn't. Um, Such and, as? Well, Anne and Paul um, discovered that they were both reading, um, well, not reading, but studying Voltaire at the same time. And, and so the congressman is saying how he's listening to the great courses in his car whenever he's in the car and that he's currently listening to lecture series on Voltaire. And Anne jumps in, oh, I didn't know that about you. I'm, I'm reading Voltaire, but I'm doing it in French. And so we went off on this whole little tangent about her reading it in French and having to cheat and go back to the English. And, and all I'm doing is sitting there and thinking, you know, time is ticking. I got more questions. Um, you know how that goes. You're, so, you're, you're pushing Congressman Ryan for color in his life, and he seems to, to not give you much. I mean, you're, you want to know his TV appetite, uh, the things he's consuming, and it doesn't seem like he has time for a lot of things other than the wonky business of being uh, chairman of the House Budget Committee, does he? You know, I mean, listening to lectures on Voltaire, I mean, I, I actually said, are you serious? <laughs> um, but I think even the, I think even the revelation that, that he doesn't, he didn't even know what Real Housewives of New Jersey is. He said, you know, I don't have time for sitcoms. And, you know, I wanted to say, well, actually not a sitcom, it's a reality show. But, but I think even that was illuminating that, you know, he is through and through a policy wonk. Um, and I think that tells you something about what you're getting. Uh, at least I, I hope we've done some service in, in letting folks know this guy really is um, an intellectual geek and proud of it. And, it, you know, as somebody who has also spent a lot of time with Sarah Palin, I have to say the anti-intellectualism, you know, that, that, that she would um, spout off about, you know, criticizing the intellectual elite, it was kind of refreshing to see somebody you know, just relish um, intellectual pursuit. It was a change of pace. Yeah, indeed. I mean, as you know, when I was working for President Clinton, I would often make sure that the wire reporters and the print reporter in the pool had had the access that they that they were statutorily entitled to, but I was much more focused on, could we get a great picture? And you do have a wonderful picture by Peter Yang that 
tends to give you about a thousand words, but give us a little bit of your own perspective on the image that's there and whether the chemistry that you you might get from Peter's picture was really evident in, in sort of what you were able to eyeball and take away. Yeah, I almost think there was more chemistry. I mean, Anne um, and the governor really revel in having kids around, and they were just just loved, instantly loved those Ryan children, and they were playmates with their grandchildren right away. And you saw, too, in the governor and um, Paul Ryan, I, almost, a, I mean, I, I hate to sort of diminish the stature here, but there was almost a little bromance going on, um, you know, when uh, the governor sort of headed off on a tangent about, um, you know, Paul and him being wonks and problem solvers. And, you know, I could feel us kind of wandering down the talking points road. I kind of jumped in and said, oh, but can he quote, oh, brother, where art thou? Because I know from spending time with them in the last campaign that the family, the Romney family, will just break out into quotes, um, accents and all, from the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I thought that would be a, a way of quickly pulling the governor back into People Magazine world. And, um, and it was funny because Paul Ryan was like, you know, oh, yeah, I've seen that movie. And, you know, Anne says, but can you quote it? We can quote <laughs> the whole movie. And then Mitt Romney, in, in this moment of, like, kind of adoration, says, you know, I'll bet he's seen it once and can quote the whole thing. But it, I had to watch it multiple times, and it still took me a while to get all the lines. And it was, you know, he was clearly just reveling in this new running mate's uh, intelligence and talent. Um, and then there was another moment at the end of the interview where I, I asked about the Ryan family budget and, you know, you know, are you a spending cutter at home, too? And, and what was your last splurge? And he's, you know, oh, we don't buy very many things. We buy a lot of used stuff. He goes, oh, I know. I bought a chainsaw, a steel chainsaw. And Mitt Romney, like a little boy finding out, you know, his best friend just got an Xbox 360, says, you got a steel chainsaw? And and there was just something in his voice that was so boyish and, like, really, like they were trading, you know, video games. I, I just um, can't wait to see the next time you follow them out to a bow hunting exercise together. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did ask, are you ma- have you made a noodling date? And, you know, the governor just can't help himself. He stiffens right up and says, you know, oh, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm going to leave the noodling to him, you know, fly fishing. I'll, I'll go fly fishing, but not noodling. Again, um, I'm sure neither, neither has seen uh, the great reality show out that's purely about noodling. I mean, I've right, become a right. huge fan of noodling in the past year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, we know now Paul Ryan does not watch reality TV, so I'm uh, sure they haven't. One mystery uh, maybe you can help us uncover is that, um, you know, Jana Ryan pictured— uh, makes for a very attractive couple and, and a very attractive family, the Ryan family. She's not yet talked publicly. What were your impressions of her in close quarters? You know, she um, she was a little more reserved. It was hard for her to get a word in edgewise um, with the, you know, the three others around the table, and I had eight minutes. So, um, 
but it wasn't like she was afraid to talk. And, you know, out in the parking lot while we were kind of arranging that photo in front of the bus, I walked right up to her and was, you know, just trying to get the kids' ages and which, you know, boy had which shirt on so that we could do the captions correctly. And she was very, you know, it wasn't like, oh, where's my handler? She's trying to talk to me. Um, you know, we, we were they were trying to get the kids to stand still and just do one nice smile and then we'll eat, I promise. And she was very much like a regular mom. Um, she told me she's, uh, when, when after Paul Ryan said, oh, we don't buy, we buy a lot of used things, um, you know, she was quick to, to look at me and clarify. She's like, I do shop at consignment stores and do a lot of goodwill. I, I like a bargain. Um you know, I think it just sort of struck her as odd the way he said we buy a lot of used stuff, and I think she wanted to make sure, you know, I knew it wasn't exactly garage sales, but she actually <laughs> goes to consignment stores. Um, but she just seems very, very real. Um, she's going to go back home, uh, and the kids are going to start school on schedule, so I don't expect that we'll see a very lot of her on the campaign trail, um, you know, they're starting school. They've got three kids, and she's going to stay home with them. On the assumption, the 50-50 or so assumption that, that this campaign does not go well for the Romney-Ryan ticket, it may indeed go well, but if it doesn't, did you think in your exposure to this couple and this family that you might be seeing a leading candidate for 2016? Oh, I think so, for sure. I mean, it's, it's you know, Paul Ryan came right out of the gate um, as a campaigner. I mean, he was perfectly at home on that stage, maybe even so at home that he looks more natural at it than, than the top of the ticket. So, um, you know, but it's funny, I, I did not sense it with Jana Ryan that I was necessarily looking at a future first lady. I mean, she really does seem somebody who's comfortable in her home life and um, her family as it is. So it'll be interesting to watch the evolution of Jana Ryan. Talking about someone who has being, become very comfortable uh, in the glare of the spotlight uh, in his three and a half or, or more years as president and Michelle Obama's time as first lady. You've also had time with the president and first lady this week in Iowa. You used an adjective with him that I think is is very true in this in the one snippet that has been released publicly so far, calling him unrattled when uh, sent, when Vice President Biden uh, had a momentary slip up this week. What was your, without betraying too much of what you're put being what you're putting in your article, what will we be prepared to see in people about the Obamas in your conversation with them? You know, um, we mostly talked about um, you know the girls, uh, Malia starting high school. You know, she actually starts high school the week of the Democratic National Convention, um, which I'm sh- sure burns <laughs> that first family. You know, because. They they can't really be home uh, those first few days of Malia's high school career. So we talked about the the girls, what how they talk about the possibility that they'll be moving again come January, um, the big wedding anniversary that the two of them have coming up, and how you wedge that in to a busy campaign schedule. But what I was most struck by with the president, the first lady never changes. Every time I talk to her, she is the same you know her 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 she doesn't seem to change her talking points um she just is authentically michelle and that's something i've i've admired 
But the president, it struck me, you know, I, I gave him the opportunity to, to say what he thought of the vice president's put y'all back in chains. Um, and then when he defended the vice president and, and you know, uh, was not willing to even say that it was an unfortunate phrasing, um, I then said, you know, but it, but it's not just put y'all back in chains. It's, um, you know, the uh, Priorities USA ad and all this negativity. I mean, he's joking on the stump about, about Romney tying the dog to the roof of the car. And I was really struck by he did not take the opportunity to say, you know, I think everybody needs to dial it down. This is not what the voters care about. Um, it, it very much felt like a different candidate, Obama, than the one I covered in 2008. And even the one in the first year in office where, you know, he very much was above the fray and tried to keep his rhetoric above the fray. And even if he got political, he would step back and, and you know, try to still make it seem like he was above the fray. He's not doing that anymore. I mean, this is bare knuckled, and he's not even going to pretend that it's not. Well, in the pages of People magazine, we sometimes like to take a break from the bare knuckled realities of politics. Sandra Soberai Westfall, thanks for joining us for a couple minutes uh, on polyoptics this week as we prepare for your conversation with President and Mrs. Obama, having read your exclusive early coverage of the Romney Ryan ticket. You certainly have shown us uh, a different side of Paul Ryan, a different person on the national stage. Thanks very much for joining us. Best of luck. We'll see you down the road. Thank you, Josh. My pleasure. So now that we've spent a few minutes with Sandra Soberai Westfall about how People magazine is covering the campaign, let's go to America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, one of my favorite states and certainly a place that is no stranger to presidential politics. And let's talk to someone who is no stranger to being around presidents, around candidates. My old friend and successor of mine at the White House took over my job as director of production for presidential events, George Caudill of Caudill Consulting. George from Des Moines, Iowa today. Welcome. Thanks for joining me on Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. Love the show. How are, now, everything played out. The week started uh, in Norfolk, Virginia, when the Romney-Ryan ticket was unveiled, but the action quickly moved to the heartland. There had been, uh, obviously, a long-held plan of President Obama to bring Ground Force One uh, to Iowa. How did that trip play out? You know, Josh, visually, the, the, the trip couldn't have gone better. Um, you know, we saw the, the, the vast fabric, which is Iowa, you know, from farmlands to uh, windmills um, to the state fair, where the president had a pork chop and a beer. Um, it, was, it was quintessential Iowa. And they went from the Missouri River to the Mississippi River. And visually, this week could be seen as nothing other than a home run for the president. Bring me through some of the pictures that you think broke through, not only on the national level where we were able to see them, but the Des Moines Register and other local press, because you are vying for those six electoral votes in Iowa, right? Absolutely. And, you know, Iowa is truly in play. And those six small electoral votes are going to mean a lot in November. But I believe that if you were, you know, to go through the the different photos from the week, um, the ones that would stand out uh, are is the president in Oskaloosa, um, a small town in southeast Iowa. 
um, where he visited um, a, an old farm that has been turned into a museum. Um, stunning Iowa visuals with old tractors, an old fire truck, an old farmhouse, and a Quaker meeting house. George, we've we've appraised Obama events in the past, and he, they seem to gravita- have gravitated more toward uh, high school gymnasiums, college arenas, uh, hotel ballrooms with uh, a, a fairly standard backdrop. This was an Iowa bus tour that seemed to evoke the best of Iowa, uh, as you mentioned the, the the hay bales, the white picket fence. How do why do you think they are pivoting now to imagery that sort of reflects more the locales in which they're visiting? Josh, they're moving full throttle into campaign season. Uh, the the events that he traditionally does indoors, uh, they're they're trying to craft a more presidential look. Now, what they're trying to do is get the president out. Um, to be seen in this great fabric, which is America. And I, I really believe the campaign is starting to feel like they're in full campaign mode, like the good old days. And they're getting out there, and they're not going to be putting him in front of Blue Drape a whole lot anymore. We're going to see him um, across the United States, and you're going to see a lot of Americans, and you're going to see a lot of American architecture. And, and I predict that this is going to be one of the most visually stunning presidential campaigns that we've seen. Some compelling visuals, George, of the president talking in, actually in front of a field of corn. Can you give us some background about uh, that shot and how that played locally? Yeah, and, and for the Iowa farmers, that, that's a very important uh, image uh, for the Iowans to see. There's a drought right now in Iowa. Corn prices are at an all-time high, and production is going to be low as it's been in a decade or so. It was important for Iowa farmers to understand that the president understands what they're going through. Uh, and so this image was the president, farmers, Secretary Vilsack, and, and it spoke volumes. And then you contrast that with another field that he was in front of, in front of later in the trip, and that was a field with huge energy-generating windmills, another important aspect of, of um, Iowa life. Um, Iowa is shooting to be primarily energy independent in the next decade, and so that's an image that, that really plays well here in Iowa. And in addition to the other rural, rural images that we saw, um, it, was, it was Iowa through and through, and they couldn't have done it better. Let's hear some of uh, President Obama from the stump in Iowa this week. Congressman Ryan, I, I know him. He's a good man, beautiful family. Uh, he is the ideological leader of the Republicans in Congress. He is an articulate spokesperson for Governor Romney's vision. I just happen to fundamentally disagree with his vision. Their vision is wrong for working families, and it is wrong for the country. So obviously, here's President Obama, George Caudill, uh, invoking the name by name of his opponent, uh, the vice presidential running mate uh, for Mitt Romney, Congressman Paul Ryan. My guess is... The reason President Obama isn't making it here from Council Bluffs because he only knows left turns. Ryan was also in the state this week. How did that play uh, to Iowa voters? Uh, I think to say, uh, to be gracious about it, Congressman Ryan got off to a rocky start. His visit to the Iowa State Fair. You know, Josh, you've been there. You've seen when uh, an opposing candidate has a gaffe, when Bob Dole fell off the stage. You know, we don't rejoice at that. We die a thousand deaths when our fellow advance people, you know, have an event that, that goes bad. 
Um, I my heart went out to the people who organized Congressman Ryan's event at the state fair. Well, what was the gaffe? Just being oh, heckled? Was, well, he was heckled. They didn't have uh, proper security around the stage. People were able to rush the stage. Yeah, you know, and that's that's not right. It's not fair. Um, you know, Representative Ryan did the best he could, but boy, I tell you, it was that's not the image a presidential campaign wants to see when their vice presidential nominee goes out the gate. But, you know, I think he seems like he has a pretty thick skin. And uh, and I think advanced team, again, George, you know, you're 48 hours into being the vice presidential nominee. Your, your advanced team and your staff is barely gelling yet. And you got to get a rhythm going. And certainly if you were planning this first stop in Iowa, you might have done something other than Des Moines, which we've both been in that state fair so many times, you cannot control what goes on within those gates, can you? Well, when you're president of the United States, you know, I was there uh, for uh, President Obama's visit, and when you're president, you can lock it down tight. Bike rack was everywhere. Uh, There were Secret Service agents, state police. It was the president and his adoring throngs uh, at the state fair. And it was safe, it was clean, but that was a function of security. With Representative Ryan, they just didn't have the resources to plan. And so it, with, without that planning, without the resources that early in his tenure as the vice presidential nominee, things are bound to go wrong. And, and I think they should have thrown a little bit, more resource, little bit more resources at this first event, because as the first event, bad, bad visuals. Well, George, you and I are are veterans of both good and bad visuals. We've had plenty of them in our careers. Uh, Both shared this this incredible role that we had as director of production at the White House. And I always love uh, calling into Des Moines and getting a real heartland view of what's going on. Really glad to have you back in the hustings, back involved. And I hope that we can check in with you later on as things really heat up after Labor Day. Coming out, Josh, I'll buy you a pork chop. Thanks, George. Have a great day. Thanks, Josh. POTUS. This is POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. So as we said at the top of the show, uh, we, we, were, we were able to stand outside on Florida Avenue, wave our hands wildly, and flag down my old pal Dan Rosenthal uh, as he's on his way up to Camden Yards to witness what seems to be like the swan song of the 2012 season for the Boston Red Sox. What's your view of what's going on with, with Bobby V's team, Dan Rosenthal? Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. It's good to be here. I have to admit I was not too enthused to to make the drive up uh, to Camden Yards as I was when I received the tickets. But Because uh, uh, this is usually a Boston fest in Baltimore, right? Yeah, I think this may be the first game at Camden that I will have been to where there's more Orioles fans than Red Sox fans. But uh, um, obviously disappointing season for our boys. The uh, pitching, I think, more than anything has let them down. And obviously the manager is taking a lot of heat at the moment. So you and I both reveled in 2004, 2007, and the sort of subdued skipperhood of Tito Francona seemed to be such a right fit, as did uh, Theo Epstein, for this ownership and, and that stadium and that town. Did this, did this feel to you when, when Bobby was not named to be the right fit for the Red Sox? Yeah, I, it seemed like an odd choice to me from the get-go. I mean, he seems like a nice enough guy, but um, the, the big personalities don't always play well, I think, in that role there. Let's hear a little bit of uh, what Dustin Bedroya has said 
in the locker room after news broke and that Yahoo Sports broke that the Red Sox had ha- held a big team meeting uh, during a recent uh, series in New York City. I know coaches had a meeting, Bobby had a meeting, we all had a meeting. Um, I mean, basically, when I spoke, I said we all need to be better. That includes owners, Bobby, coaches, especially the players. So, you know, I, I've had one problem with Bobby earlier in the year, and I went into his office and talked to him like a man. And he talked to me like a man. And we've been great. We've had a great relationship. Has that been the way it's played out in Boston? We talked to him like a man. We've had a great relationship, you, you think, between Dustin Bedroya and Bobby Valentine? Well, you know, I'm a few hundred miles away from the uh, from the hub here in D.C., but from reading the Globe and uh, other things online, it seems like he really got off on the wrong foot from the from spring training on, uh, with comments he made about Carl Crawford and then with Euclid, uh the way he's handled uh, people like Lester and Beckett. Uh, it's been one thing after another. So I, I won't be surprised if ownership goes in another direction next year. Talking about getting off on the right foot or the wrong foot, uh, Saturday morning uh, we wake up to a big event in Norfolk, Virginia, the rollout of Representative Paul Ryan as the vice presidential running mate. How do you think it played, and how do you think it's been playing throughout the week? Well, I think uh, in terms of the event itself, it was it was very well done, other than the long walk down the gangplank. I love the long walk down the gangplank. Well, I figured you would, but... That's my shtick, the long walk. Stewart did a... Uh, John Stewart's show did a, a segment about it the other night. Uh, it was a little long. They, they were kind of running down the gangplank. <laughs> yeah. I, my first reaction was, boy, you know, uh, they they got the Navy to agree to let them use the ship, and then I realized that, you know, it's museum. a retired... It's a museum ship. But... Um, I thought it was very well done, uh, other than the walk. They had the Kingian sort of Air Force One theme going on. Kingian, right? Yeah. It was good, and uh, it seems like they're very well coordinated in their their attire. Yep. Then and since. And they're both svelte. They look good as a a team. Father-son kind of thing. Exactly. Optics are excellent. Yeah, yeah. A little different optics in that way. I can't think of a sort of father-son situation. We had the... Son, we had the son. Well, that's true. But we had the son father with uh, Dukakis Benson, maybe. And we've with had the, three son fathers. We've George had George W. Bush Cheney and sort of Obama and Biden. Yeah. The uh, no, I think they they seem to have uh, hit the ground running. Uh, um, obviously, it's changed the dynamic a bit in terms of the news cycle, with a uh, focus on Medicare now. Uh, we'll see if that is sustained or if uh, they're able to put that issue behind them, which I think they would like to do. Uh, we were just looking at some images from Romney on the Road, a, an event in West Virginia, I think, with coal miners. Had all the sort of aspects of, I think, a well-produced event, good podium signage, good human backdrop. Miners, even with sort of coal streaks down their cheeks, um, it, it seems that both the Romney campaign and the Obama campaign of late have been recently to advanced school and re-adhered to some of the basics, and we see a little more thematic, a little more visual coming out in what they're doing. Has this been what you've been seeing from the, through your Yeah, campaign? I think uh, I've generally been impressed with the Romney campaign's uh, advance work throughout. Uh, they seem to be head and shoulders above the, the other candidates throughout the primaries, a few exceptions here and there, but for the most part they seem to be the most professional uh, well-produced sort of uh, uh, events out there. 
any comments on the way this White House, uh, this president, the way their events are portrayed versus the way Dan Rosenthal is director of advance in the Clinton years uh, would have either rolled out foreign trips or major domestic travel or things happening in and around Washington? Well, obviously, the big difference is the explosion in uh, in media, both uh, in terms of the number of television outlets, but just internet, uh, social media, et cetera. Uh, things are, truly are happening in real time now. Um, every event is in one form or fashion being covered live, um, which uh, really requires uh, a level of perfection that even under the scrutiny that we operated uh, with, it was not quite as intense. Maybe a level of perfection and a, a level of sort of neutrality, less bells and whistles, because more stuff can go wrong, more stuff can be John Stewarted or Stephen Colbert. Right, right? that's right, like the, the walk down the gangplank. Right. That would not have probably really been noted as much back uh, 15, 20 years ago. Exactly. Uh, when we when I when we were last together in Washington and we were working side by side or at least uh, in support of people like Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, you are now still working uh, as their colleague at the Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, what's what's the role and and what is the the firm trying to do on a global basis? Yes, well, that's what brought me back to Washington was the opportunity to work with. Uh, Secretary Albright and Sandy and, and the other great professionals at Albright Stonebridge Group, which is a firm that um, counsels uh, mainly large companies, but other organizations as well, in their international operations. So we help our clients enter new markets, uh, develop government uh, affairs and government relations strategies, uh, deal with regulatory issues. Uh, mergers and acquisitions involving international partners, et cetera, um, a real sort of broad range of services that we provide to our clients that are increasingly looking overseas and to emerging markets for uh, revenue growth uh, for their companies. Bring us back, Dan, to your time as director of advance and uh, what would happen when uh Sandy Berger, National Security Advisor, might call you down and say, we're going to country X, uh, maybe a country that you'd never been to, never heard of, or uh, or certainly a place that seemed sort of off limits for a U.S. president to go, like a Vietnam or something. Uh, what, was the, what was the experience of sort of going out to Andrews Air Force Base, getting on a government plane, and, and figuring out what the president needed to do once he got on the ground? Well, uh that really was the funnest part of my job, I think, was um, the foreign, you know, planning the foreign trips where from the very beginning of the process where there's sort of a notional idea of what the president might do uh, while he was on the ground uh, to uh, a site survey trip, which was the first visit uh, with a small team of people, including the Secret Service, the military office, uh, people like yourself, uh, to sort of do a first outline of what the trip would look like uh, based on what we observed on the ground, what we heard from the host government from our embassy, if there was one. Uh, and uh, through that process, uh, honing uh, the initial outline down into more of a detailed plan, coming back again a month or two later for what we'd call a pre-advance, 
with a larger group and doing more detailed planning, really nailing down uh, the cities that would be visited, the sites within those cities, what the, the schedule was going to look like, so that when the advance teams arrived about 10 days or so before the president, they had a pretty detailed uh, plan for the visit. Um, it really, as I say, was the funnest part of my job. It, it provided actually uh, a lot of uh, opportunities for creativity, as yep. you know. Um, the national security advisor and uh, our ambassador in the country were not experts on planning presidential trips the way we were. So they had sort of goals from a diplomatic or communications perspective that they wanted to reach, but it was really up to us to figure out how to achieve those goals in, in many cases. So um, it was it was a lot of fun, and uh, we saw the fruits of our work on the uh, on the news and in the newspapers, magazines, et cetera. Um, and in some cases, I think the work that we did on those trips had very significant impact diplomatically and uh, in terms of bilateral relationships. Uh now, when you're across the table, across the negotiating table, either with the Chinese or, or other uh, national bodies and their protocol staffs, you know, you try and be very direct and to, and to talk turkey about what's <clears throat> actually going to happen when the president shows up. But you always in some way feel like they're telling you one thing over over dinner or, or luncheon and another thing when your, te- your advance team actually gets deployed on the ground, whether they'll allow the president to be driven in his own limousine that has been flown over by the, th- from the United States or one of their cars, and it would be an affront if we didn't travel in their car. Bring us back to some what you would regard as like one of the hairiest moments when either you were on the ground or with the president on Air Force One, or you get the call back while you're in Washington from your advance guy and say, Dan, we got a real problem. Well, there were a number of those. <laughs> I actually the the one that I'm remembering off the top of my head was actually not with President Clinton, but it was with Vice President Gore. Where uh, in a in a certain Middle East country, he would not come off the plane because the Secret Service said that the uh, the host government had uh, one of their security people insisting on riding in the limousine with him. It became a, a bit of a diplomatic incident. I. Uh, uh, in terms of dealing with those issues, though, and, and the approach that I found worked the best, it was really in getting beyond the niceties and getting into the specifics. So um, you mentioned China. That was one where we spent a, a lot of time and effort in planning President Clinton's trip there in 1998. It's a very ambitious trip. Um, from the first meeting that we had in the in the Great Hall of the People, um, I got pretty granular with them about what our needs were going to be, what our uh, requirements were, uh, what our goals were. And over the course of the, the following months, um, developed a relationship with our counterparts such that there was a level of trust there. Um, shortly, uh, the week before, or even days before actually, the actual visit, uh, my counterpart from the Chinese government, who's now actually the uh, Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Zhang Yusui, uh, and I and the deputy chief of mission from the embassy flew around China on a little U.S. Navy jet, which in and of itself was an accomplishment. But we flew around visiting each of the stops 
that the president was going to make and just reconfirming what we had agreed to with the local municipal or provincial officials. Uh, as you can imagine, what we had agreed to uh, in Beijing was not necessarily uh, what the folks on the ground there uh, were planning on. So we, we did a lot of uh, troubleshooting, a lot yeah. of, of clearing up of misunderstandings. And I think as a result of those sorts of efforts, you're able to prevent those phone calls from the advanced person on the ground. But um, uh, that's, I think, what makes a good advanced person uh, is the ability to overcome those situations when they arise. I love the tradition that we have, uh, that we certainly did a lot during the Clinton years, I've seen happen during the Bush years and the Obama years too, is when uh, foreign heads of state and government that the president might have a particularly close relationship with comes to the U.S., you don't sort of confine the visit only to Washington, whether it's Helmut Kohl in Milwaukee uh, or David Cameron out in Ohio with President Obama. I'm reading, um, or I've read Robert Caro's book, uh, Passage of Power, and saw how this played out when President Johnson uh, welcomed the, uh, I think it was the head of, the Prime Minister of Poland to the Johnson Ranch. And so all the sort of people of Polish origin from all over Texas come and descend on the ranch for a wonderful two-day state visit. Uh, any fond memories either during the administration or your experience working with the Clinton Global Initiative of what it's like to be with President Clinton as he welcomes foreign heads of state and government to our land? Well, you're right. He certainly had developed uh, a number of, of very strong uh, uh, and friendly relationships with um, other heads of government and state, and um, I think was probably more ambitious in undertaking these sorts of uh, side trips outside of Washington or outside of the capitals in the in the countries we visited yep. um, than anyone else I can really think of. Uh, some of that, you know, is by virtue of the fact that he really traveled a great deal internationally and saw these people on a regular basis and was in office for eight years, of course. Um, and has stayed in touch with them, as he mentioned, uh, through his foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative. A lot of them come to his annual meeting in New York, or he sees them elsewhere in his travels. Um, tr uh, in terms of a great story, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I, I know that they had a great time, uh, I think more than once, out at Checkers, uh, the prime minister's residence uh, in England. Um, not not a good story, but I remember an advanced person who was out there wound up uh, somehow riding on a horse and fell off, and uh, that was something I wound up having to deal with. Was the uh, all of all of the uh, issues ca that came with that? Why she was on the horse and uh, all of that, all of that. Yeah, we're talking with Dan Rosenthal on Sirius XM Channel One Twenty Four POTUS Polyoptics. Dan was the former director of advance in the Clinton administration uh, and is now senior vice president with the Albright Stonebridge Group. Dan, when was the first time you did uh, political advance of any kind? That would have been in 1988 when I was in college. Um, during the primaries, uh, Mike Dukakis. Uh, you were a Brookline boy yourself. A fellow Brookline resident um, came to visit the University of Rochester. And uh, I helped the advance team organize the event. So I, w I guess I wasn't truly doing advance, but in essence I was uh, 
one of the site people for that event, which uh, was a great introduction to that world. And then um, I graduated from college that spring and went out on the road for the Dukakis-Benson campaign that summer and fall. Um, Met, worked with the great Mitchell Schwartz and Dennis Walto and, and Steve. Yes, all of the uh, Andrew the, Frank the and luminaries. Yes, uh, did indeed, and uh, had a lot of fun. Um, I wound up uh, somehow developing a reputation for um, visibility uh, work, which is where you create, uh, as the name suggests, visibility for the candidate and the, and uh, campaign signage, et cetera, along bus trips, train trips, et cetera. So we had some fun with the uh, bus trip through through uh, Missouri and Illinois, I remember, through the Central Valley of California, among others. Uh, came back again in 1992. Uh, actually took time off from law school to do advanced work for Governor Clinton in the primaries and through the general election, and um, continued to do advanced work thereafter while I went back and finished my law degree. Worked uh, at a couple of agencies in the federal government after finishing up law school and then was hired as the deputy director at the advance office of the White House. Under the great Page Reef. Yes, indeed. Um, and then when Page left uh, after the 96 election, I um, was moved up to replace him and stayed there through middle of 2000. In all the annals from 88 to the present, whether it's a domestic trip that you did or anything international, What's the most exhausted moment you can possibly remember when it would tested your physical metal more than anything else? Wow. Um, there were a lot of those times. I think the the one that that sticks out as really truly the most physically and emotionally draining was um, when uh, well was was the funeral of Yitzhak Rabin, where. Um, we had to very quickly organize uh, the president's trip over to Jerusalem for the funeral. Uh, and I was in particular in charge of organizing the congressional delegation, former presidents, former secretaries of state, et cetera, that were going over with the president. We had several aircraft going over. Uh, and uh, as is the custom in the Jewish religion, of course, the, the the burial happens very quickly, so we had almost no time to plan. As I recall, the uh, the car the car plane that was taking the the limousines and the advance team left about ten or twelve hours before Air Force One did. So we literally were operating um, several days without sleep, uh, and I remember sitting there at the funeral and being just uh, sort of physically exhausted and just so overcome with emotion, obviously, at, at what was going on at, at the uh, the event there. Uh, but it was also one of the most moving speeches uh, that I'd ever heard from President Clinton as well. So uh, both exhausted and somewhat uh, maybe uplifted is overstating it, but um, memorable in terms of the great words um, that he said about Rabin and what he stood for. Most fun you've had in your career as an advanced man? Single trip that you said that was just a, a blast. I mean, mine would, might have been 
the 96 Atlanta Olympics, we did a great event, but then I sort of had the run of the Olympic <laughs> Park for a couple of days, had a pass that could get me anywhere. And I remember being at the opening ceremony with President Clinton and uh, watching Muhammad Ali light the Olympic cauldron. Uh, you know, as I reflected on what happened in, in London the last few weeks, I said, boy, would I love to be back in Atlanta or, or in London and experiencing that again. Uh, I think probably my most fun, purely fun trip, although there was some work involved, was right after the 96 campaign, That's true. Um, which was, of course, exhausting, many lo- long hours and late nights. But um, I had the good fortune of, of um, doing advance at uh, the stop in um, near the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which was uh, obviously beautiful and great way to sort of recharge the batteries also after the long and grueling campaign. Um, now, you and I are both great friends of uh, Mort Engelberg, and Mort tells the great story of how, uh, you know, when he was being told by a director of advance of the White House at the time to make sure he had a, a pocket full of quarters in case he needed to use the payphone or, or allow the candidate to use a payphone. Uh, now we are in an age, Dan Rosenthal, where you can take your iPhone and take pictures of a site. You can send back video. Uh, the legacy of the advance that you and I were brought up and taught is one in which you are independent, creative, entrepreneurial, opportunistic, uh, and very much sort of detached from the umbilical cord of either the White House or campaign headquarters. Now I think you must be sort of completely attached through all sorts of photographic and electronic means. From what you can tell either externally or, or the th- people that you talk to now, is the experience of being a, uh, a campaign or White House advance person quite as fun as we, we remember it? Well, I can't speak from personal experience because I've not done advance uh, work for the, for the White House uh, or for the campaign in the last couple of years. But that is definitely what I've been hearing from people, that um, a lot of, well, pretty much all of the decision-making is now made back uh, at the desk. And um, so a lot of the, the ability to be creative, to try something new and different, is um, is being taken out of the process. When we started doing advanced work, cell phones were a new phenomenon. Bricks. And, uh, you know, the big bag phones or the yep. bricks. and. Um, even those were not, you know, we didn't always have those. You you will be issued a sky pager, Mr. Rosenthal. <laughs> right, faxes were a, a new, uh, a new and and uh, helpful innovation. But I mean, you would plan to speak with your desk at a certain time of the day, and the rest of the day you were pretty much out making the decisions and planning the trip. Um, you would, of course, uh, inform the headquarters of what the plans were, but. As he suggested, it's instantaneous now with uh, uh, the ability for the folks back in the office to know exactly what it is that you're looking at, what the options are that you're considering, and really to manage things from there. So I think probably a lot less fun, a lot less creative than it used to be. Well, Dan Rosenthal, uh, my old friend from Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, headed out tonight or this week to see... uh, the Red Sox try and hold on to the season at Camden Yards. Uh, have a good trip up north to Baltimore, and uh, great catching up with you on Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It was great to be here. And uh, you want to join me on, at, up at uh, Camden Yards? You have an extra ticket? I have a feeling you probably can find one. 
Let's go grab one. Take care. So now that we have sent Dan Rosenthal north to Baltimore and Camden Yards, let's stay in Washington, D.C. with one of the legends of D.C. journalism, a person I've admired for 20 years since I first met him when I was at the White House and Matt was writing for U.S. News and World Report. Matt Cooper, the editor of National Journal Daily, welcome to Polyoptics, sir. Thank you, sir. Matt, I've been following your stories and your tweets. You've been following a bit of the Paul Ryan rollout and a bit of the Joe Biden uh, reaction this week. What's the sort of take after a full week of seeing the two complete tickets in shape? Uh, well, it's interesting. I think they've uh, really begun to engage each other. And I know there's been a lot of lamenting about how negative the campaign is and, oh, it's gotten so mean. But I actually think it's been a very, uh, very healthy debate for the most part. Uh, Paul Ryan has a very bold and different vision of Medicare than it's uh, been before, and uh, he is uh, even if Rami has not 100% embraced the plan, it's he said how much he likes it, and he really owns it at this point. And so we've had a we've had an interesting discussion so far about it. So I actually find it uh, not only titillating in terms of politics and gaffes, but also in terms of substance. What about the the chemistry and optics? You and I were both witnessed in 1992 to. Uh, young presidential nominee Bill Clinton and Senator Al Gore. They were well-matched. They embarked on their on their bus tours with Hillary and Tipper. And in subsequent campaigns, you've had uh, Dole and Kemp. You've had Bush and sort of the elder Cheney. You've had Obama and the, the elder uh, Biden. This sort of goes back to a different model of the 60-something uh, nominee and his younger counterpart, but who look alike, sort of have similar disciplines, uh, and and their wives seem to uh, gel together, and they're right off on a bus tour after the announcement. Is this sort of a different kind of chemistry than we've seen recently? Yeah, they all vary a bit. I mean, this is, you know, it does have the father-son look, uh, Don Draper and Pete Campbell. Uh, yeah. It's got a, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's got a different look than, uh, than the others. But look, clearly it's uh, gotten conservatives uh, excited. And uh, and Ryan's a good campaigner, so I I think I think overall, you know, um, I think there was some some feeling, especially on the part of Democrats and other commentators, that he would have been better off going with a sort of you know Palanti or Portman. But I, I think this was a, this was a good choice for him. Jonathan Martin has a big piece out this week about Joe Biden campaigning, and you sort of the, see the the dust ups of the Carl Rove's and Sarah Palin saying it's time to get rid of Biden, but. You know, this is a guy who has been steadfastly with President Obama since his since he was announced. And do you do you put any credence to sort of uh, the moment this week when he he made at least a verbal gaffe in, in some people's estimation? How do you view Senator Bi- uh, Vice President Biden's role in the ticket at this point? Um, I think he's uh, actually helps the Obama ticket too. And um, you know, I I listened to the speech he gave uh, which he talked about. You know, they'll put you back in chains while I was uh, driving and heard on C-SPAN. I have to say, it didn't really register with me at the time. Um, and I think even in retrospect, uh, you know, it's not that big a deal. And, uh, you know, I think just as Mitt Romney's uh, words about I want to fi- I like firing people were totally taken out of context. I think this was, too. So I, I think this will turn out to be a blip. And look, Biden's a good campaigner. Um 
and frankly, he's, he's popular in kind of, you know, kind of white working class areas where Obama's had a lot of problems. Yep. And, um, you know, I think he's a pretty, I think he's a pretty good surrogate. And I think it'll be a really good debate. I mean, I kind of picture Biden uh, at the Ryan debate saying, God love you. You're a good looking fella, but your Medicare plans will run over grandma like a Mack truck. <laughs> That's exactly the way Vice President Biden would say, isn't it? Yeah. God love you. Uh, how is National Journal uh, deploying its assets in the campaign? What kind of uh, people do you have on the road? Who, uh, who who do you have with Obama? Who do you have with Romney? And then what is your own personal mix of editing versus Matt Cooper writing and analysis and other types of uh, reporting? Um, well, take the second part first. I guess I'm about sort of 75% editing maybe 25% writing. Um, and uh, we've, got, uh, we've got a nice partnership with CBS News that's uh, given us a lot of reach in terms of being on the uh, campaign planes. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of uh, correspondence, we've got Major Garrett, who's leading our uh, White House and Obama coverage, and Beth Reinhardt, a, a storied veteran of the Miami Herald, uh, leading our Romney coverage. And really every uh, reporter kind of has a piece of this campaign. You know, we're pretty focused on policy. And so the health reporters, the energy reporters, pretty much everyone's got a piece of this. From your own uh, perspective, I guess you've been back with Ron Fournier and National Journal for about two years at this point? That's right. Uh, what is covering the Obama White House compared to the covering the Bush White House and the Clinton White House in terms of your own view of access, enjoyment, uh, them willing to give you, give up uh, information that you find useful in reporting? Yeah. Well, I think all White Houses are getting more close. You know, the Clinton White House, which was the first I covered, all the reporters said, oh, it was so much more open under Bush. Uh, and then people complained during, uh, you know, um, the Bush years, said it was more open under Clinton than now during the Obama years. I think the natural tendency of White House is, is to try to control, and they do more and more of it. So, you know, I think uh, it's like shaking your fist at the rain. It, it doesn't really help to sort of get upset about it. Um, you know, it's a reporter's job to kind of work around those things and try to um, ascertain information as you can. Um, and, and that's what our reporters try to do. So summer of 92, you're, uh, you are summer of 93, let's say, uh, or, or four, you're still at U.S. News and World Report uh, covering the Clinton White House. Colleagues of yours who were at U.S. News, David Gergen, editor, Don Baer, editor, are now in the White House. Uh, David as a, as, a, as a counselor and then Don as a head speechwriter and then director of communications. What, what was the interplay between you as trying to report in the White House and being able to call people who were former colleagues and whether they would sort of continue to, to work with you or provide information with you the way they might have been when you were co-writing articles in 92 versus when they were inside the White House? Well, they were pretty responsive, but, you know, I tell you, at the time, uh, the news weeklies were a much bigger force uh, in politics and media. And so with a few million subscribers and a much larger pass-around rate, um, it was the kind of publication where people took your calls generally. So, um, you know, it was, it was fun to know people who were on the inside when you were covering it. Uh, but in a way, they had to be more suspect with me because obviously if there was some leak that only came from, could have come from them, and it was in U.S. News, everyone would look at them. So it was not a huge advantage. 
Now, you know, people like you and John Harris and Ron Fournier and Bill Nichols, uh, this is sort of the class of 92 that I, I came into politics with and now in different ways uh, contributing to running and managing the new kind of news organizations that are in Washington. Is it still fun for you? Is it a challenge for you every day the way it was when you were much more of a, a, a younger reporter? Uh, well, it's mostly hard because they're much more handsome and successful. <laughs> and so I have to deal with a burning jealousy each day. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun in different ways. You know, it's uh, I don't think anything quite is has the frisson of the first time you've been on a campaign, but it, but it's still fun. It's always interesting, and uh, it's always different. Um, speaking of uh, always different or, or or always the same, a couple of weeks, uh, I assume you might be in Charlotte, North Carolina, and see uh, the forty forty second president of the United States. Uh, put Barack Obama's name in nomination, what will it be like, and what do you expect President Clinton to say from the podium in Charlotte? Maybe you can do it uh, in his voice. Yeah, that's right. He has a backbone of steel. <laughs> um, that's actually Biden's line. Um, look, I think it's, first, just to set the scene, I think it's kind of remarkable that both the Republican and the Democratic presidential ads are citing Bill Clinton, Yeah, showing pictures of Bill Clinton. Uh, I mean, just eight years ago, or 12 years ago, in 2000, uh, during one of the Republican debates, John McCain got all agitated George W. Bush because Bush had compared him to Bill Clinton. And McCain said how outrageous that was, how it was beyond the pale to be compared. Now the Republican nominee is just is, is kind of cozying up to uh, his quotes, if not him. Um, so Clinton has a good stature because... Um, He's done some interesting things with his post-presidency. Um, his wife's popular, and uh, the '90s economy looks pretty good now. So I, I think, as character witness, he'll he'll probably be a great advocate for Obama. I think I think very effective. Let's hear some of the actual Bill Clinton, and then I'd love to hear some of Matt Cooper's Bill Clinton. I'll tell you something. I'm going to give you this election back, and if you'll give it to me, I won't be like George Bush. I'll never forget who gave me a second chance, and I'll be there for you till the last dog dies. And I want you to remember. And now, President Clinton, welcome to Polyoptics. Good to have you on the air, sir. I miss you. Uh, what have you been up to the last few years, sir? Well, my foundation's been doing uh, important work all over the world. I I'm trying to make a contribution to... Uh, I'm riding, and uh, you know I've never left these policy issues. I, I want us, I want to see our country succeed. Uh, Matt, when you occasionally delve into uh, other impressions, what are some of your <laughs> your other favorites that you bring on? Um, well, you know I've been dining out on that one for a long time, yeah. but uh, you know I feel like my time is really passing me. Yeah. Um, of course, Al Gore is always a good impression because uh, <laughs> there's those dramatic pauses and. Uh, <laughs> Moments where he sort of gets a little brain freeze and then <laughs> comes back. Um, and uh, Obama's hard, you know. I do a fair amount of staccato Obama. But I've really, I've taken the most pride this season in Ron Paul. Can I do a little Ron Paul? Of course. Let's hear some Congressman Paul. Now, there's no reason for the government to start <laughs> building roads and sidewalks. I mean, that's fine if the private sector wants to do it, but this whole idea that we turn to government for sidewalks, I mean, that's what led to the fall of Rome. I mean, it was a cement highway for the Visigoths to come in and invade. <laughs> 
That's awesome. That's awesome. Do you, do you have any uh, Governor Romney working up? Uh, it's hard. It's no, hard. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not really there. I don't have a you know sort of anchor manish enough voice to make it. What work. do you think that the, that little chuckle he offers after it's sort of he, he's asked an uncomfortable question? Yeah, there is that. Uh, it's a little. I guess a little nervous. A little nervous laughter. It's not quite disarming though. It's a little edgy. So Matt, we're in the throes of the 2012 campaign, and uh, as you as we've talked about. We're about to embark on the conventions and the debates, and it's going to be fascinating. Uh, but I can't let this conversation with you go, and I hope we'll have others later, without hearkening back to, uh, what, 2003 to 2005, and a period of your life when it was very different from you covering the sturm and drang of a presidential campaign. You were yourself the story. What happened that day when Karl Rove called you? Well, um just to set the scene a second, I mean, uh, I, I was like a number of reporters who got caught up in the uh, investigation over the leak of uh, the identity of Valerie Plame, the CIA agent, uh, Tim Russert, Bob Woodward, Robert Novak, Judith Miller. Yeah. I mean, just a whole slew of people before the end of it were kind of uh, engulfed in this. I happen to be um, especially engulfed, but uh, mostly because I had a conversation with uh, Carl Rove in uh, 2003 about uh, Ambassador Joe Wilson, who had come on the scene uh, quite dramatically and said that there was, uh, he had not found evidence of nuclear weapons in Iraq. And it's hard now to remember what that was like because we know it so well, but uh, at the time it was kind of shocking because the war was just a couple of months over. Uh, it had seemed to have gone well. Uh, Hussein was out of power, and our, our crews were out there looking for these weapons, but it wasn't widely assumed we would never find them. But he came back, and he had a lot of cred, and he said that, and um, I had a conversation with Carl Rove as I was trying to find out about more about this Joe Wilson, and... Um, during the course of the conversation, Rove said to me, um, well, you know, his wife works at the agency. And I knew he didn't mean the Environmental Protection mm-hmm. Agency. And, well, you know, things things went on from there. And so uh, eventually I, I uh, was asked to uh, reveal my sources about that. Uh, time Inc., my employer at the time, and I uh, pushed that back as long as we can eventually uh, – I got permission from uh, my two sources, uh, Scooter Libby and Carl Rove, to uh, speak about the the case, and um, my my contempt citation was lifted. So um, it wasn't the happiest time in my life, but you know, I tried to I tried to equip myself as best I could, and um, and I'm very glad I didn't have to pay my legal bills. How did your legal bills get paid? Uh, the uh, Time Inc. paid them, so. Uh, I mean, you, great you, you were at the time the newly minted deputy bureau chief of Time magazine and its White House correspondent. Uh, how did it affect your ability just to be more in the background and, and do a job while you were at the time engaged with lawyers and Time Inc. and fighting this uh, subpoena? Well, it definitely took up a lot of my time. I mean, it really had an effect on it, uh, especially towards the end as uh, the possibility of going to, going to prison approached. Um, but, uh, you know, that, uh, I actually, it didn't make a huge difference for a long time, and then it really just totally dominated things. When it was finally over, when Libby and Rove uh, lifted the restrictions on you testifying and the encounter with the grand jury was done, you wrote about it for Time magazine, uh, and 
you were able to make some light of it at the end of the process. Let's hear a little bit of you with John Stewart. Do people get uh, seduced by the, the idea of it that, oh my God, Carl Rove's on the phone, and even though he's saying Pelosi's a lesbian, but it's on super secret probation, you know, right. is that, and then you go like, but it's Carl Rove, and I want to talk to him again. Right, no, I think there is a lot of that, and I think it's up to you not to get seduced by it, but just to go, you know, talk to as many people as you can and try to get at something close to the truth. Uh, makes you sad or makes you hopeful? Uh, you know, it's hard to see how it could have gotten worse than this last few years, so I think hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> hopeful in a sad way. Right. Oh, very nice. Okay. Matt Cooper, editor of National Journal uh, Daily. That was seven years ago on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. As the time has passed, do you reflect any differently on, on the whole saga? Um, I'm a little sad that uh, there is still so much prosecution of leaks going on. You know, I would not have guessed that the Obama administration uh, would be prosecuting leaks uh, so much more than really any previous administration. I mean, uh, it's been a, it's been a real uh, crackdown on things, and um, so I found that unfortunate. I've also found it unfortunate that there are more. Uh, protections for journalists and their sources. Uh, there really are they're a fair number at the state level. They don't apply to federal law and federal situations, which is why I got caught up in it, and um, I wish there were more. Well, Matt, uh, I wish that there's, uh, I wish we could turn back the clock to the fun that we had uh, in the early years of the Clinton years, and uh, um, as long as you destroyed the negatives and the tapes <laughs> have been erased, we're, we're okay. Matt Cooper, thanks so much, and thanks for all the coverage that National Journal is providing for us at the campaign. I hope we can see you down the road and have you back on Polyopolis. Absolutely, Josh. Great to be here. Thanks, Matt. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on Pulse.